It's a fact. Life can be hard. And dealing with its challenges is no mean feat. The ability to recover quickly in the face of adversity is known as resilience and can be our best ally during times of stress. Welcome to The Resilient Road. In this series, we look at human stories of perseverance, exploring what makes someone resilient and what we can all do to help nurture this process in our own lives. I'm Sinead, and together with Brian Hi there. and Elle, Hi. we're part of Positive Group, a team who uses psychology and neuroscience to help people make positive changes to improve their health and well-being. So before we get started, I thought it'd be really good for us to have a bit of a chat about resilience. At Positive, resilience is a topic which comes up a lot. It's a word that we hear in many different contexts. Why is resilience important, Elle? Life's not easy for anyone. And there'll be times in our lives where we're challenged. It's not that certain people are superhuman and they're the only people capable of displaying resilience. Mm -hmm. We can cope with a lot more in a lot of situations than we think we can. And trying to just be kind to ourselves and understand that this can take time, but we will be able to often figure out a path or a journey towards resilience and building that in relation to whatever challenge we face. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's nice about the stories across our series. You see how people approach that in different ways. Is it something, Brian, that you think, would you call yourself an everyday resilient human? Wow. Um, Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I think, like all of us, I think I have periods of doubt, trepidation, anxiety, insecurity. I I don't think you know, actually, how you'd cope Mm -hmm. until you have to. But no, I wouldn't describe myself as immensely resilient. But I think I've learned some techniques over the years, mostly from studying psychology and actually looking at what resilient people do and trying to uh, emulate some of that behavior. Absolutely. I think we can all identify people who are almost resilient role models that you can see deal with, manage, come back from, adapt to these these really quite extreme circumstances. Mm. What about you, Elle? Have you any experiences of uh, personal resilience? Hard as nails. (laughs) Um, For me, there's definitely an ongoing process of trial and error. There are times where I feel like I've been able to be fairly resilient. And there are times where you definitely still struggle. Yeah. And then when we're 100, we'll have all the answers to every possible uh, dilemma. So I suppose when I think personally about resilience and, and whether or not I have it, over the course of my life, I think I have tried to develop myself as a holistic, resilient person. But there are things that happen um, in different contexts that do throw you. It's almost as if I kind of compartmentalize the different experiences in my life. And I've been going along collecting these badges of resilience, if you like. So I've had my difficult and traumatic breakup. I've managed that. Then I've had a health scare. Then I've had uh, work challenges. So it's not just that you tick the box, that you're a resilient individual, because the challenges that come your way, they adapt um, and they throw you different curveballs. So I think it's that that ability to stop, pause, know what works for you and take action and know what that action might be that's actually been quite helpful. I definitely wouldn't say that I've nailed it, but I think what is really helpful is is self-awareness. So knowing the things that will throw you more than someone else, for example. 
by listening to real-life stories of resilience in different formats, we can start to recognize and pick out common features of resilience. We can start to think about ways that we can proactively build and develop our own resilience. The thing about resilience is you don't know you have it until it's been tested. You were in the dark, in the heat. The other prisoners would start banging on their metal doors and screaming. It was like feeling you were in, well, literally a hellhole. So in this episode, we're looking at the question, how can we use our minds as a tool to help cope with prolonged periods of threat and uncertainty? With the story of journalist John McCarthy. My name's John McCarthy. I'm a journalist, a writer and broadcaster. And I suppose I learned about resilience for the first time in my life when I was in Lebanon in 1986 as a young and inexperienced journalist. Back in the mid-80s, I was in my late 20s and living and working in London for a television news agency. I'd also got engaged to a colleague, Jill Morell. It was a great moment in my life. and I was really enjoying this career as a journalist. And then, in early 1986, I got the opportunity to go abroad on my first foreign assignment. I was sent off to Lebanon, to Beirut, the capital of, of Lebanon. To get that job, I felt quite proud and naively excited. I'd never been outside of Europe before, so to go to the Middle East, go to a war zone, it all seemed really rather magical. Lebanon was the hottest place, if you like, in the Middle East in terms of a news story because of the civil war that had been running there already for 10 years. It was a very important place for my company, the news organization, because we sold film coverage to all our clients around the world. I knew I wasn't going to be out there forever. I was just going to go for a month to cover for the regular office manager. I had this sense of going out for an, uh, an adventure, a taste of working overseas, and then coming safely back to London. It was an exciting blip from the ordinary daily routine. When I arrived, I was stunned at the level of devastation to the city. The 10 years of civil war was bound to have taken its toll. And working in the television newsroom, I'd seen, well, hours probably of coverage. But I simply hadn't translated that in my head, that every single building would probably have bullet holes in it or a shell hole, or that every road would have bomb craters. It was bringing all this horror of war close into my mind and getting rid of any previous thoughts I'd had that this was some kind of exciting thing. This was suddenly now very real and dangerous. Luckily, there wasn't much fighting going on, so I had the opportunity to start learning the ropes of being a field producer. I think for much of my time there, I was being so much the onlooker, the voyeur, that I wasn't thinking in terms of it being dangerous for myself. I was in the centre of town and in what was at that point quite a peaceful zone most of the time. The battles were far away. I remember once we got some video coverage from a car bomb that had happened on the other side of town. I was mainly based in Muslim West Beirut. And from the Christian East Beirut, we had this coverage back. I'd seen lots of aftermaths of car bombs. They were awful things. Somehow the fact that, although this was not particularly any different from previous stuff I'd seen, that it had happened just a couple of miles from where I was actually standing really did bring that sense home. I was meant to be staying in, in Lebanon for a full month while the ordinary office chief was on holiday. But whilst there hadn't been much fighting going on, in, say, the third week, I think it was, a couple of Westerners were taken. Two Englishmen were kidnapped outside a nightclub quite late at night. Tragically, they were both murdered. And then an Irishman was also taken on his way to work in the morning. 
I'd spoke to my boss about this and he was saying, look, we don't know what's going on. Why suddenly Brits or Irish people would be targeted? But, you know, you better get out of town. To be honest, I was thinking, I don't really want to go. I mean, I feel safe. I felt completely inconspicuous. So I said, oh, do you think so? And he just said, yeah. So I decided, right, well, I'll get the first plane out. Got up very early the next morning and was driving with a couple of my colleagues to the airport. It was this kind of strange feeling of leaving the devastation behind me and almost mentally preparing myself for that departure and was nearly there, almost on the plane and on the way. Suddenly, we were overtaken by another car going at speed, which then slammed on its brakes and skidded to a halt, blocking our path. Our car stopped and we just sat looking at it. I think I was staring at it in a sense of complete disbelief, thinking, this cannot be happening to me. It was almost as if I was watching a scene from a movie. This big young man got out of the back of the car with his machine gun, came round and yanked me out. Even at that point, I had lost some of my senses. He took me to his car, threw me in down onto the floor, and he jumped in on top of me, and we raced off. I'm kneeling on the floor, you know, really uncomfortable, and tried to get up. The guy banged me on the top of the head with his fist, which really hurt. And that moment, that pain, I suppose, burst that bubble. My senses came flooding back. Suddenly there was the smell of diesel from the engine, grime and grease on the floor of the car. I was suddenly right in the heart of it, and I was the terrified focal point. Interestingly, he sort of stroked my head, having hit it, as if to reassure me, I don't want to hurt you, but you do what you're told. The car stopped after a while, and he took me around to the back of the car, and the driver joined us, and he was a much older guy with grey hair and a big silver pistol that he was pointing at me. I thought, oh my God, this is it, it's going to shoot me. He didn't, they just stuck me in the boot of the car, and then we raced off again. And then stopped, and they bundled me out, and I was standing outside this huge building, which had great big double doors and a gloomy interior. I heard footsteps. A man appeared, who just walked straight up to me, and didn't say anything, but just took a piece of cloth out of his pocket, tied it round my eyes, and took me by the hand into this building, down a spiral staircase. I could feel his hands going through my pockets, taking passport, wallet, watch off. At the bottom of the stairs, I was sort of pushed into a smaller space and heard a door closing behind me. You know, sound of metal on metal. I carefully took this blindfold off and found myself in this tiny space, three, four foot wide maximum, six foot long, and there was this metal door with a grill at the top of it, sort of open bars to let the air in and out, and I think a neon strip light, and a filthy foam mattress on the floor. That was it. Only went out of it once a day, basically, when the guards would come and take all the prisoners blindfolded to this disgusting bathroom and then back, and no communication. That would be it for the next 24 hours. I soon got into the routine of having the blindfold very close to hand on the mattress beside me, sometimes even wearing it around my forehead like a sort of bandana. I knew that the guards, they made it clear that as soon as they came in or opened the door, I had to pull it down. That became automatic practice, sadly, pathetically in a way, throughout all the years of captivity. I do remember initially trying to be optimistic, I mean, really madly optimistic, like saying, well, they must have made a mistake, they've got the wrong guy. And therefore, I'll only have to put up with this ghastly, filthy hellhole, you know, for a day or two. And then they'll realize they haven't got a famous diplomat or a famous journalist even. And it's just little John McCarthy and they'll let me go home. So I clung to that to start with. And then I think I retreated into just thinking, right, I just got to hang on. I've got to hang on. They'll work out something and I'll be going home. What I did mainly to keep myself going was pick up on the plans that I'd had, whether it's holiday or Jill and I getting together, getting married, having a flat. 
And then also I tried to write a diary, particularly of things that struck me as being amusing, or stuff that had happened to me in Beirut, you know, as a free man, that I would try and remember as a story that I would then tell in what I thought would be a week or two or a couple of months maximum when I got back. Stuck in this tiny little cell, you're very conscious that you've got just a blank wall and blank ceiling and no windows to look out of, and that's it. There's no horizon, no perspective, no visual distraction. So one used the internal eye to remember. My parents lived out in Essex in sort of gentle rolling farmland, and I would imagine going off on this walk, off from their house down a track, and then down past a rickety old uh, barn, through the freshly sown seeds springing up, wander back into the village, through the white five-bar gate into my parents' driveway, and, and then into the house. You'd be picturing everything in great detail to bring these places, and, and of course the people in them, back into sharper focus. So I was thinking about those things, but at the same time, all the time, extremely physically uncomfortable. Not just because I was confined in this cell, but it was getting hotter and hotter, and I was getting dirtier and dirtier. Sometimes when the power was on, you'd have this blinding neon strip light just above your head in the cell. But at least there were fans outside, turning the air over a bit. But then when that went off and you were in the dark, in the heat, the other prisoners would start banging on their metal doors and screaming. It was like feeling you were in, well, literally a hellhole. At the same time, the mosquitoes would come in waves and start biting you. So you'd end up having to get underneath your filthy, disgusting, gritty, grimy blanket to get away from the mosquitoes. After a while, after um, six weeks or something, I don't know, another prisoner was brought into the block. I heard him screaming in pain because they were beating him up. And it would seem to happen every day when they'd come to the block, take the prisoners to the bathroom, and it seemed there was always one guard thumping this poor guy. That continued for a few days. And then after the guards had gone away, they came back. I remember sitting at the back of my little cell and looking at this grill at the top of the door. There were lights on in the corridor. And watching as a few people, you know, walk past to see their shadows on, on the wall. They went to this guy's cell and started beating him up, just screaming and screaming. And then it got to a crescendo of screaming. And then there was a bang. And they'd killed him. That obviously put into perspective that although nobody'd shown me any aggression since the actual moment of kidnap, they could easily decide just to shoot me. And that made me think about my life. This could end here. I sort of started looking back and thinking I was so lucky. You know, I had a brilliant family, lots of opportunities, been sent to a good school and been to university, now engaged to a beautiful woman. And I was just thinking, you know, wasted so many chances. One felt utterly worthless, really. You had this sort of feeling of just self-loathing. One day I had this moment when I was literally cracking up, thinking I cannot cope with this anymore. I felt like I was going down in a whirlpool and going to get sucked down into madness. And I fell to my knees and said, oh, God, help me. And the next moment, I was standing up again in this little cell, and the harsh neon light had turned to a soft blue, haze almost around me, and I was feeling totally euphoric. Very weird. I'd gone from thinking I am about to lose my mind. Suddenly I'm thinking, no, everything's fine, I should be all right. To this day, I don't know whether that was divine intervention or whether it was an inner spiritual experience or whether, as I've heard, there are moments when people can be in extreme danger and somehow they are lucky enough to get a release of energy, endorphins, whatever, I don't know, that sees them through that moment. I'm not a religious person. 
So I just think of this as not one God or whatever God, this is just the good spirit. I think that was actually very important, that it was something that one could go back to and think, if worse comes to worse, I won't go mad. Perhaps that good spirit moment will come back. And also at times when I got very anxious about my family and friends, particularly about my mum, who I knew had had a resurgence of, of, of cancer just before I went off to Lebanon. And I used to say, oh, you know, good spirit, show them a bit of your light. After the moment of bright light in the cell, I thought I would survive. I felt total confidence at that point. Even in the little solitary cell, I started thinking, right, well, this is what it's all about. I'll be going home soon. But suddenly, I had this energy and determination. I'm going to have to do something more with my life when, not if, I get out. Probably over the years, that belief grew thin at times, and it was hard to know. But by and large, I think the optimism and the sense of the future will be bright one day. There will be light at the end of this weird tunnel. Wow, what an amazing story so far. I think from what we've heard already in that story from John, what I'm really interested in is to, to kind of go to the, the textbook of resilience, mm. he's almost going through a checklist of the things that actually mm. we know are quite helpful. So he's optimistic. He's thinking, they've got the wrong guy. I'm going to mm. be out soon. So he's starting to wire up this hopeful way of thinking about his future. He's actively future storytelling. So he's mm. telling tales of mm. how he survived this ordeal to people in the future. So all of that is wiring up a really positive, hopeful neural circuitry. So he's not focusing on the fact that he's in this windowless room, that he has absolutely no control over when he comes and goes. Um, and I think control is a really, really important topic to consider in terms of resilience. We have what we call, what psychologists call a locus of control. But for John, that's taken away. So mm. his locus of control, the things that he can control are the things that are in his mind. So he starts to use this in a really, really helpful, protective way for himself, which is amazing. It is. I, I mean, I suppose the, the the thing that really resonates for me is a lot of people in that situation could have had a very much more catastrophic thought, but he has quite a hopeful thought. And he is choosing to use his mind to focus on something that is not toxic, that is not terrifying. And I think that links so beautifully to Viktor Frankl. And Brian, for listeners that are not as familiar as Elle and I with your favourite books, um, <laughs> who is Viktor Frankl? Viktor Frankl was a, a psychiatrist who, along with his wife and his sister and his parents, were put in Auschwitz. He developed this process of using his mind to cope with the environment. He thought to himself, well, they can beat me. They can torture me. They can kill me. But while I can draw breath, I can decide what I use my mind for. Mm -hmm. So he used his mind to focus on acts of kindness between two inmates or a sunset or to use his mind about thinking about leaving Auschwitz, reuniting with his friends. And then he taught other inmates this technique. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful example of cognitive control because you can't control the circumstance, but you can control what goes on in your head. And what I'm really blown away by is the detail that John puts on his imagery. It's his ability to use his imagination to transport him out of this hellhole. And I know, Brian, you are quite keen on this topic of using imagery in a really supportive and helpful way. I suppose what's so fascinating about this is he talks about his internal eye or his mind's eye. And then what he's doing is actually reconstructing a walk 
in Essex at his family home or his parents' home. And what he's doing when he does that is he will activate a neural circuit in his brain as if he was on that walk. So it activates 80 or 90% of the neurons in your brain as if you were going on the walk. So it then shifts your neurochemistry, it shifts your physiology, it shifts your mood state. And that is because he has decided to decide to think about something that is not as toxic as the place he's in. And that is a cognitive technique is incredibly powerful. This imagery is a fantastic way to shift mood. And I think what he's demonstrating is using a virtual reality to actually alter his own brain chemistry, his physiology, in the most awful, awful experience, which is what Frankel did too. Because it's such a good word, I think we should tell the listeners what it's called when you practice or imagine something going well as like a rehearsal. And they're called Gedanken experiments. (laughs) I think I've said that correctly, Brian. You did, absolutely. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Einstein used Gedanken experiments. Galileo. Brian loves to say Gedanken. I love it. I love it. We all love to say Gedanken. (laughs) (laughs) Gedanken. And the uh, the reason it's so extraordinary is what all of these guys did is they used imagery to come up with their ideas. But what we see with John then is his ability to use his imagination in a protective way for him Mm. in terms of his resilience. One thing I wanted to pick up on there is he was obviously coping very well given the situation and then he's reached this tipping point where he's heard someone be shot and then it's obviously become almost too much. doesn't matter how much imagery and visualisation and and coping you try to do. Everyone has their limits. And I think we can all relate to that moment of where you feel like you're going into free fall a little bit. If you think about his, his internal beliefs about what's happening, when he hears the other guy getting shot, he starts to think, this could happen to me. He has that real moment of being overwhelmed. He then puts his belief somewhere else. So he talks about this kind of good spirit, this higher power. I think it sort of gave him an element of control on a situation where he felt like he had no control. He has this moment where he feels like, well, actually, there is something else that can help me. I can look beyond the things I've looked to so far. And he holds on to this belief of this sort of greater power or higher power and it's nice because then he sees that as ways he can actually help people back home this spirit and then that makes him feel less helpless most of us are theist so we all anthropomorphize we 92 percent of the world's population have some form of theistic belief now theistic belief isn't necessarily your god is my god but it's a god or some greater power and and i think We were talking about it on the way here today, about having imaginary friends. And Sinead will tell you about her imaginary friends in a moment. uh, laughing at the fact that I had more than one. (laughs) I had a little trip of them. Sinead had four, four imaginary friends. Two of them were twins. Um, (laughs) We'll come back to Sinead's imaginary friends in a moment. But the reason I think this is a very powerful cognitive tool is that comes back to imagery. It comes actually back to a guy called Paul Gilbert in the UK, who's a professor of psychology up in Derby. And he's done some fascinating work on the compassionate mind. And he trains people to develop a compassion-focused approach to themselves. And he encourages people to bring up an image of their compassionate mind. And this it's a bit like Aladdin rubbing the lamp and bringing up the good genie. And what he's shown is that if you can combine the image with this external coach, friend, mentor, compassionate being, and you call on them for help, you ask their advice, it's incredibly powerful. 
Now, I think what John's done, and, and extraordinarily well, is he's not a religious man, but what he's done is he's found something that makes him feel he has a sense of cognitive control. In a way, he has utilized a process that, that is now evidence-based. It works. It's a fantastic cognitive technique. And here again, you see John use something that has been actually trialed in clinical care and works. And I think this is just a wonderful example of him creating an imaginary friend, really, which then gives him a sense that he's got someone walking with him. I think we get great consolation from that belief, whether it's Sinead's imaginary friends or, or whether it's uh, the good spirit. I was in this tiny little cell for, I think, two months of solitary confinement. Suddenly, the cell door opened at a strange time of day and I heard this voice saying, get ready, today you go. He took me back up the spiral staircase that I'd come down a couple of months earlier, put me in the back of a van sitting on the, the floor, and I realised there were other people there with me, at least one other prisoner, as I could tell. And then we drove across the southern suburbs of Beirut, bundled out of the van, and thrown into a room and the door slammed shut. I sensed there was somebody else in this room. I carefully took the blindfold off. There in front of me was another man taking a blindfold off. Initially, I just looked at this guy and thought he looked dangerous and deranged. He had mad hair and mad beard and wild staring eyes. And then I looked at him closely and then realized it was Brian Keenan, the Irish teacher who'd been kidnapped a week before me. And I'd seen his photograph before. So I sort of extended my hand and said, how to do, John McCarthy, ludicrously British. We got talking. Who are these guys? Why have they got us? Initially, I found it really difficult to understand Brian, he was from Belfast and his Irish, Northern Irish accent just seemed impenetrable to me. After a while I had to sort of say, I'm terribly sorry, but could you sort of tone down the, you know, the full Belfast accent? And he just laughed and said, all right, if you stop talking like Prince Charles. <laughs> we both laughed and then luckily for the next four years, laughed with and at each other and, and particularly at the people outside the door, sharing humour with, with another human being and the release of energy that, that comes just when you have a laugh was absolutely extraordinary. There was a huge sense of relief at having a fellow human being in the cell, someone I could talk to. You felt your mind was safer. It was like a complete new injection of life and hope. Brian is a, is a great character. He'd grown up during the Troubles, so he had an understanding of conflict, you know, way beyond somebody from the home counties in England could appreciate. So we had very different world experiences. But we shared an interest in literature, quite similar political views, and a great sense of humour. A couple of months after meeting Brian for the first time in that cell, we were moved again. That was one of the biggest strains, in a sense, of just simply not knowing what was going to happen in the next minute. The guards might burst in and you'd be tied up, you might be gagged, hands and feet tied together. At the same time, you're trying to cope with not knowing, not seeing anything that's going on, not daring to speak, and then just wondering, where are we going? And we were sitting at the end of a journey, you know, trying to capture our breath and regain our equilibrium, and suddenly there was this clanking sound. I looked down, sitting cross-legged on the floor with Brown to my left or right, whatever, and just saw this pile of chain appearing. Great big thick chain. One of us said, you know, this can't be for us, we're not animals. From that point on, horribly, we were chained up. Some of the chains were heavy, so there was this physical weight as well as a mental, emotional weight around you. Brown was a very feisty guy, really had much more courage, or I thought mad courage, in dealing with the guards when things did get a bit heavy to start with. 
Over the years, I learned from him that it was all right to be angry. It was all right to tell these people what you thought about them. I think without Brian, I'd have found it very hard to survive as a hostage. But I know that from him, I learned an awful lot about myself, about how to deal with things. Learning a lot about him, learning that I like so much about him and coming to love him eventually as a, as a brother, you know. We were together sort of 24-7 for four years. The way we supported each other, I think, was, was through humour. We were often in cells six foot by six foot on little mattresses, chained up underground so no daylight, and never knowing what was going to happen in the next minute. And so the humour was really vital, not only in us having fun sometimes, but also in being rude to each other, upping the ante on the insults until they were so outrageous, so crude and vile, that you, know, you couldn't end up but giggling at each other. Extending and expanding and delving into each other's minds was really vitally important literally thinking out of the box that we were in. Back to the real world again, so we'd imagine or talk about the places we've been to on the planet, and we talk about people. That's how we sort of built a world around us and also made plans for what we were going to do when we got out. There were times when you got to the point where you thought, I, I just can't take this anymore. It's ridiculous that they keep these chains so tight around our ankles. I've just had enough. We can't pick up arms and fight these people. So you just think, I'll withdraw from their game and stop eating. This is me, and this is my body. Losing Brian's company in August 1990 when he was released should have been utterly devastating. But I think I was very fortunate that I wasn't on my own for long. So the, the sense of losing my right arm, if you like, didn't happen that I could concentrate on the, the joy of Brian being a free man, thank God. Luckily, two American hostages, Terry Anderson and Tom Sutherland, who we'd been with before, rejoined me, and they had a radio and they had news. Suddenly, I could completely immerse myself in trying to understand what was going on through the radio. The situation was winding down. Everyone was thinking, oh, it might be out in a couple of months. But as it turned out, it was another year before I got home and a few more months beyond that for the Americans. We'd heard on the radio that Islamic Jihad, the group that were holding us, were uh, going to send an envoy to the United Nations, but also they were going to release an American and a British hostage. We assumed that they were going to release an elderly Briton, a man called Jackie Mann, who was in his 80s at that point. I remember I was chained up next to Terry Anderson. As they began to take me out of the room, he tweaked what was going on, and he just gave me a big hug and said, you know, good luck. Didn't really get a chance to say goodbye to the other guys. We didn't know it was happening, it was going to be me. Just as when I was kidnapped, I was thinking, this cannot be happening to me. This can't be real. I realized that the guards were treating me as a free man, even though I was still blindfolded. I was in the boot of the car, no bindings, no sacks, nothing like that, and driving back to Beirut, where I was being held in an ordinary apartment. I was allowed to go and have a shower. I was given fresh clothes, new clothes after five years, and shoes, and a little digital watch, which was pathetically exciting looking back. I think I was just thinking, be careful, it may go wrong. Don't let yourself get too carried away in case it goes wrong. That evening, a couple of the leaders came to talk to me. They explained that I was going to be the envoy to the United Nations. And I had to take a letter to Perez de Cuella, the Secretary General of the UN. That was my mission. I said, you know, why me? I, I don't know anything. And they said, well, we've talked to our brothers, and they say that you've got a good spirit. Tomorrow you will be going home at 10 o'clock, and then you'll be released. Obviously, I didn't sleep a wink and just spent the whole night like a little kid watching minutes and seconds tick by so 
slowly. And then at 10 o'clock the next morning, nothing happened. And I thought, oh my God, has it gone wrong? And 10, 30, then probably 11 o'clock, suddenly a guy comes and says, all right, we go. And I'm put in the boot of a car, and this big manila envelope lands on my chest. It's for Perez de Cuella, his eyes only. My um, liberation, if you like, was the almost exact reverse of my being kidnapped. Started off in the boot of a car. After a while, the car stopped, and I was bundled out of the boot and found myself sitting on the back seat of a car between two gunmen. The gunman sitting either side of me in the back seat jump out and rip my blindfold off, saying, no look, no look. It's now just me driving another gunman in the front passenger seat. Door opens, hand takes mine. I'm pulled out. And I'm walking along, just staring down at the ground, you know, with my hand over my eyes. And this voice says, you can open your eyes, John. Uh, I'm General Adnan Balul from Syrian military intelligence. You're free. And uh, my job is to take you to Damascus, from where you can go back to England. The next minute, I was racing along the Corniche, which is this beautiful coastal uh, highway, in an open-top Mercedes sports car. What on earth's going on? It's just too weird. I think initially I couldn't quite take it on board. I couldn't believe it still. Once I got out of Lebanon, we crossed the border, and he said, oh, you're now in Syria. And I thought, oh, that, that feels better. I think I feel safer now. While I was talking to the British ambassador, who I met shortly after getting into Damascus, he told me that my dad and brother were going to be arriving shortly. They were coming on a, a, an RAF plane, a medical plane, that was coming for me, but they were coming too. So there I am sitting in this ambassador's garden in the Middle East and sunshine. After a while, the, the door on this terrace opens and out come my dad and brother. They didn't look like they'd changed at all. We were just terribly English about it. Gave each other a big hug allowed ourselves a sob or two of just, you know, release. Thank God it's over. And then head back to the UK to get back to the plane. Oh, it was extraordinary flying home. The, the pilot invited me up onto the flight deck. He said, watch, just watch. This is now nighttime, looking down over the English countryside. And it was very weird because village lights were going on and off. And he said, they're welcoming you home. And then suddenly there's the flight controller saying, oh, we'd just like to welcome Mr. McCarthy back to British airspace. We came into land, there was this sea of lights, of journalists, you know, photographers and camera crews and whatever, all taking pictures of me. Suddenly Jill and another friend arrived. And within five minutes, we were all roaring with laughter, just old, stupid old jokes. It was just magical to be home. John McCarthy, freed from Beirut, is tonight on his way home. I hadn't realised I was terribly famous, and so I couldn't go anywhere initially without being recognised. It's been a very, very long time, uh, five years and three I remember talking to Brian about it, you know, the next couple of days. He said, I think, remember, because we're just ordinary blokes being caught up in a pretty unimaginable experience, people see us as, as every man. We're just the blokes next door who happily seem to have come through. Whatever strength I've had to uh, endure the past five years has really come from, from those men. And uh, I think we spoke a couple of times on, on the phone, and then I went over to Thailand and spent some proper days with him. It was quite strange, because suddenly we were free men. You know, we were still in shock, I suppose. But you found initially that we would often sort of go into a supportive hostage mode with each other, watching each other and protecting each other in a kind of way that's totally inappropriate when you're out at a dinner party with other people. You know, completely mad, really. Fortunately, our friendship rather than being one purely of, of survivors or being in survival mode, became normal friendship with a rather remarkable beginning. When I first got out, I thought, right, well, that's it. 
brilliant. Hostage done. I've dealt with all that inside. Done my hunger strikes, you know, all that sort of stuff. Don't need to worry about that anymore. Now all I want to do is try and get back to work as a journalist. Most importantly, uh, get back together with Jill. That was my thinking at the time. And that's it. Uh, particularly over the first two or three months, may maybe longer, I realized that there were moments when suddenly I would drift into a cloud of something of confusion. And, you know, thinking, oh, I'm never going to actually be normal. I might think I'm normal and I've dealt with the hostage thing, but I, I'm obviously a freak. You know, even to myself, I'm a bit freakish. I'm never really going to blend in. And Jill and I started thinking about writing a book together about her campaign, obviously, in my captivity. So focusing on that began to help bring normality back to, you know, it was cathartic. Complete recovery. Probably took two or three years, maybe more than that. Brian had this theory you had to be out as long as you were in. Looking back, I think as, as an individual, and this has been important too as a journalist, I think, through suffering, I think I've learned a lot of empathy. That's been a really vital lesson to me, to broaden me as an individual, as a human being, to know what it's like to suffer. I mean, I hadn't really. My earlier life had all been so pretty blissful, really. Although it's a strange thing to say, perhaps, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I had that experience so that I can relate better to fellow human beings. Wow. What a story. Incredible. Amazing. I mean, I think firstly, focusing on that relationship with Brian and that time when, when he came to join him um, kind of reminded me of when we first met Brian. I thought you sounded a bit like Prince Charles and hopefully you could understand what I was saying. <laughs> I did think I feel like I'm with John and Brian. <laughs> That's <laughs> um, very unfair. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean... To go from being by yourself to then having this other human being who's going through the exact same thing as you. So who's experiencing the same level of challenge, the same level of threat, the same level of adversity, and someone who is in the trenches with you. How important is that? How can that help develop and enhance resilience? What I think is extraordinary is that John managed that journey to end up in that room with Brian Keenan. But I think who you end up with is probably really, really, really important. I mean, I love that thing, you know, you're allowed to be angry about what's happening. Um, I mean, I think laughter, that connection, it obviously gave him huge strength. I think the danger is that you're actually with somebody who doesn't provide that support system, who actually may be things that are making you feel more distressed or is very negative or very depressed or very catastrophic. So I think what was so great about their relationship was that it was incredibly protective, I think for both of them by the sound of it. We know social support is incredibly important. And I think when you refer to it as social support, you know, it reminds me of academia. Essentially, it's just having people around you. Talking about Brian, the fact that he showed strength, so he fought back. But he was authentic, so he showed he was angry. I think John was being quite British about it, and he was almost too polite to show the guards he was angry. So I think that authenticity he saw in Brian mm. helped him reflect on how he felt. I think we often look to people and how they feel, and that's powerful, that sort of empathy with each other. And I think, you know, what you've picked out there as well is their their laughter and their humour. And I think that mm. is such a powerful bonding and connection agent. And if we were able to prescribe it, 
that would be fantastic. If, if we could enforce laughter, that would be amazing. But the thing is, he talks a lot about release, about the release of tension, about when thoughts are building. And up until the point where Brian comes, the release comes in different forms. But laughter seems to be a real release for them in that situation. You drew attention to him saying it's okay to be angry, mm. but it's also okay to laugh when mm. bad things are mm. happening. Mm. Actually, it's really good for us to be able to laugh when bad things are happening. One of the factors here for me, I think, is that, and I think you see this in the armed forces, and I certainly saw it in, in medicine, is that the ability to debrief and black humor, being able to laugh, laugh at yourself, laugh at what's happened, it is a form of processing of, of emotional data. We'd all do that in different ways. But I think if you can process emotion, it's going to have a really, really beneficial effect. Mm -hmm. And I think being in the room with Brian allowed him to process that stuff. I know he talked about it taking years for him to recover, and I think it would. But I think if he hadn't had Brian, I think it might have taken a lot longer. Absolutely. And I think what, what, what humor can do is force a different perspective on you. So mm. humor and clever humor is about looking at things from a different angle or an incongruous angle. And so I think that's what's really interesting is it's another cognitive technique essentially mm. that they're using to shift their mood, yeah. to then shift their behavior. So the other bit to really pick up on from that story then as well is reality. To go from being a prisoner, to go from spending years in captivity, some of them in isolation, some of them with someone chained up, to then being told that someone's getting freed or acquiring that information that someone will be freed and then the kind of acceptance of the the shift in your reality because it sounds like John really struggled to actually see that this was him that they're coming for me I'm actually going to get out of here so he's questioning it he's been very cautious at every step along the way so he's kind of almost trying to protect himself which is interesting because he's trying to be realistic and cautious to protect himself sometimes it's going to be difficult to be hugely optimistic or positive you know it's good to be realistic and I think in terms of thinking about resilience whether you strive for optimism or do you aim for something somewhere in between and caution I think it's probably realistically a combination of the two I think that some of the research shows that if you can run the video on fast forward and see yourself coping that creates a sense of agency a sense of hope people who are resilient actually also run the video on fast forward and say well if that doesn't happen I'll still be able to cope. I could see myself coping with that. And that's a form of imaginal rehearsal that immunizes you to the potential setback. So I'm confident that I can do this. I, I can see it happening. I think it could happen. But if it doesn't happen, that would be tough. That would be difficult. But I could cope with it. The danger is you attach your whole being to this happening. And then when it doesn't happen, you just feel devastated. Mm -hmm. So the sense of loss and the sense of defeat is huge. And I think, actually, if you get people to imagine coping with disasters, seeing yourself coping with it is protective. Obviously, this is an extreme situation. But there are tools we can all take from John's experience to help us in our own lives. What we know is that there are a range of risk and protective factors linked to resilience that, statistically speaking, buffer your chances of having better outcomes in the face of adversity. So just to pick out some of those key factors from John, he has this strong attachment with Brian, which is very supportive and very protective for him. He also, by nature, is quite a positive and optimistic person, and he demonstrates immense capacity for controlling his thoughts and using imagery for positives. 
So I think what's really resonated with me in relation to John's story is this amazing friendship he had with Brian and the impact that was able to have. Uh, They're from very different backgrounds, but the strength of the relationship occurred regardless of that. We will all come across different people from different walks of life. Just don't underestimate the potential of those friendships and the people around you. I think one of the take-home messages for me from John's story is the good spirit he talked about. And it seems that this gives him a source of extraordinary psychological safety. And I think this is something that one sees that uh, can be incredibly powerful as a cognitive tool. So one of the most powerful parts of John's story for me is his use of imagery. So he was really able to draw upon a different time and place to help him deal with a really challenging, lonely, isolated situation. And I think what we can all do is to start to think about how we're using our minds and how we wire up more helpful patterns of thinking that will help us feel more optimistic and that will help us deal with process and move on from the adversity that we experience. And I think that's a really useful strategy to think about. To sum up then, John's story is an amazing demonstration of human spirit in the face of great adversity. But in his own words, he's, he's a normal guy who's been exposed to this really abnormal set of events. He was able to do this. He was able to respond and adapt, take the suffering that he endured, bring in tools and techniques to be more resilient and to move forward. And that should bring hope to all of us. The Resilient Road was brought to you by Positive Group and Radio Wolfgang. It was presented by me, Sinead Divine French, with Brian Marion and L. Crush, and featured John McCarthy. It was produced by Holly Aquilina. The editors were Ivor Manley and Holly Aquilina. It was sound designed by Natalia Rodriguez, and the executive producer was Harry Watson. For more information about Positive Group and the work that we do, go to www.positivegroup.org.